Good morning, our church family. Once again, it's a pleasure to be with you as we continue on in the book of James. Last week, we talked about James's language for how to spot the real versus the fake Christian, that the Christian is about receiving the word, doing the word, and, and living out charity in the imitation of Christ. And, and this week, we turn to continue to explore this theme of real Christianity, this time through exploring the topic of how the church treats one another in the body of Christ. So ideally, after this sermon, all of you will just love each other perfectly. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. We will all be convicted, we will repent and seek after Jesus as our only strength as we live out this imperfectly, but we live in grace, amen? All right, so turn, tap, swipe your Bibles to James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, or it is located in your bulletin today, if you want to pull that out as well, and let's all stand as we read God's holy word, and I pray that his word would fasten to your hearts this morning. James chapter 2. Verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones that, who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do not murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray together. Father, we, we pray these words would show us the importance of your kingdom come. That your kingdom is one that is not divided by the perceptions of man, but united by the love of the body of Christ to one another, imitating Christ himself. May your spirit now lead us in the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, these, these past seven days, I, I got to virtually celebrate the birthdays of, of both my mom and my dad, who both turned 66 and 70, respectively. 
You know, in the Korean tradition, the 70th birthday is, is a big celebration where anyone who knows or who would have, would have known or interacted with my father on a personal level would, would travel to him and attend this, this huge and large celebration. And at the end of the celebration, they would look to the kids, the son in particular, uh, to give a large, generous, exorbitant gift of extreme generosity. And it, it's not uncommon in Korean tradition for the son to provide like a house or a boat, or, or a new car, this, this generous gift on the 70th birthday. Unfortunately, my dad didn't know two things in light of preparing for this big day. One, that COVID would shut down the big celebration, and two, that his son would be a minister. So I happily got him a customized t-shirt that said, 1951 limited edition, and he was content. But because of these celebrations, you know, I, I got to reflect on the legacy of my parents. Um, both my parents, like, like all parents, d- did their best to raise me. And one of the ways that they did that was to discipline us at home. Um, now, I wasn't what you would necessarily call a, a good pastor's kid. Uh, some of you were obedient siblings going up, right? And some of you were more rebellious, and, and I was definitely more of the rebellious type. Uh, you know, I didn't go off the rails completely, but I was definitely what you would call the punk of the family. Uh, you know, I would try to push the buttons of my parents just to make them mad, right? Just, just because I knew that in pushing those buttons, it would kind of drive them to be upset. Uh, any of you here can relate to that, right? Any of you kids that are like that here today? All right, don't look, don't look. Okay, good. All right, all right. Um, uh, so each and every single time I would drive my parents up the wall, uh, they would rebuke me with this novelty spanking paddle that they found at an amusement park. And I'll never forget because me and this paddle became great friends. Uh, it, it was a wooden paddle that simply had the words printed on it that said, Attitude Adjuster. So it was this extreme measure of discipline and, and embarrassment at the same time because you're getting you know, spanked by this thing that says Attitude Adjustment. And it was very effective for my behavior, actually. But... Um, you know, my parents did this to show me how serious my behavior was and how it was causing a detriment to the family. And they'd always give me that classic line as they were doing it, uh, you know, son, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And most of the time, I didn't believe it, except for this one time when I knew I had pushed my mom too far. Um, I don't even remember, like, exactly what I did because I was so young when I did it. But I do remember that there was this moment where uh, she was spanking me, and then she just paused, and she just started weeping. Uh, And I just remember looking at her, going, like, why are you crying? (laughs) Like, you aren't the one being spanked. (laughs) And and seeing her heart break and seeing her just, just kind of pour out all of this, like, judgment on herself. Like, I'm such a bad mom. Like, how come, how come you won't listen to me? It was, I just remember seeing her heartbreak like that. It was far worse than any spanking that I could have ever received. And I didn't know what to do. So I, I would just hold her, and, 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 and I just said to her, like, Mom, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I, I didn't know how much this, this really hurt you. I, I need to change. Today's scripture passage is a compassionate parental rebuke. James is crying out to his church about the sins that are causing a detriment to the family of God. 
And he's trying to cover three big misconceptions that need to be addressed, and this will cover our time here this morning. Like my mom's tears, James does not want it to be a heavy-handed or just rebuke for the sake of rebuke. He doesn't want to do it to shame his people. It's because he wants them to realize that, that, our, that this behavior isn't who the family of God is. And so today's text is a reminder to the church family of their real identity to live and love as the church should live and love. So James's first rebuke all right, to the church in chapter 2 is that affections is not based in appearances. Affections is not based in appearances. In other words, how we love as a church is not based upon how we look. In verse 1, the the word partiality in the original language of Scripture literally translates to the meaning of receiving the face. Receiving the face. And what kind of judgment is is James particularly focused on here? He's he's focused on, on those who belong in the church. How the church determines the worth of a person, right? So how does the church determine the worth of an individual? The church cannot claim itself to be a hospital for sinners, the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus, if the condition of love is based upon how you look. You know, in, in, in a fallen world right now where, where, where image is everything, where the, where the church sort of follows this pattern of, of that, treats the people who walk through its doors with the same attitude, it robs that individual of their God-given dignity as an image bearer of God himself. And the church gets swept up in this idolatry of imagery. So... The sin that here that, we, that, that, that James is describing is about looking someone at a glance and thinking that you've got them pinned down. It's sort of the worst kind of that Benedict Cumberbatch, Sherlock Holmes deduction breakdown, right? It's, it's looking at them and, and going, oh, I, I've got you pinned, right? It's proclaiming over someone a, a guilty verdict of their character flaws, their inadequacies. And because this was written in a church context, it's proclaiming to someone who, who walks into the church that... You don't belong here, or worse, you aren't worthy enough of my respect. Uh, Sadly, it's not hard to imagine the church treating its people like this, isn't it? If you've been at the church for any long period of time, you will have either experienced this kind of pain or know someone who has left the church because they've experienced this kind of pain. This phenomenon is is popularly just called church hurt. And the stories that we hear are not just devastating, but but unfortunately all too common for people who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, for some of us who who are carrying church hurt, uh, we were judged for the appearances of our worth to the church, maybe financially. Some of us were, were cast aside because... Maybe the church felt like you had nothing to offer in terms of service or volunteer opportunities. For some of us, uh, your status as a single person, as a, as a widow, an orphan, adopted, disabled, has made you felt left out or less worthy. For others, it might have even been the color of your skin, the pain and the loss of feeling this, this, that your dignity as an image bearer of God was removed. For others, it was the lack of social capital or, or you know, church politic, politics heavy 
that caused you to feel lonely in, in the one place that you thought you would never, ever have to feel lonely in. And all of these divisions from church hurt. And you see people, other people, who are given greater attention and favor because simply that they had a greater social status or wealth or position. They were given this favor to to these higher elevations of, of prestige. And so James is rightfully trying to rebuke his church family here and say, this is wrong. This is wrong. Let's call a spade a spade. Let's call it what it is. In verse 4, he says, this is a judge with evil thoughts. And I know as I speak on this, this, this might bring about very painful memories for some of us. Because to a degree, all of us have been hurt in this way. And some of us, we've been living with it so long that we, we don't actually realize that, that we've been hurt so much that we've actually continued this cycle of sin by perpetuating what has wrongfully been done to us and doing it to other people. This leads to our current state of evangelicalism today, where statements that you, we hear often in our culture from people who have sort of left the church, they say, you know, I really love Jesus, but I don't love the church. Or, you know, I, I can live out this Christian faith, but I, I don't want to do it in Christian community. They're all too common. And what Scripture does here is that it affirms that the pain that we have all experienced in this is real. It's real. And that we, if we've been sinned against or whether we have sinned against others, we, we don't just sweep that under the rug and just try and pretend like everything's okay in the church. We don't retreat into this private, you know, sort of, I love Jesus, but I don't need the church, which is, is not a scriptural concept. Uh, but we rather instead, as James does, address it. Call it for what it is. It it is wrong. It is sin. It is evil. It is placing affection in appearances. Now, James acknowledges it, but he doesn't leave it there, does he? He wants to give us hope after helping us feel the gravity of the weight of our sin. Like the gospel itself, he reminds us that there is something greater than the sin we have been affected by something greater than the weight of sins in the wrong ways that either we have been shown partiality or we have shown partiality to others. And that is the gospel reversal that we find here in verse 5 of our text here today. Look at it again. The answer to church hurt, the answer to the sin of partiality is to be found in the hope that God gives to us, that he has shattered all the barriers of worthiness in our culture, all the symbols that we think mean status. And it says to those who are poor, either materially, emotionally, socially, politically, those who are poor are actually rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God and promised that our faithful God will hold them. Do you see how this helps us here today? Scripture is telling us here that the answer to church hurt is not to hold it in and just to feel shame. The answer to church hurt is not to just redirect your anger and your pain and your bitterness to someone else. The answer is to know and live that God sees you as you really are. More than just your poverty, more than just your hurt, more than just your sin, these markers don't define you. 
The answer is to realize that worthiness is found in the worth that God proclaims to you. You are an heir of the kingdom of God. You and I are citizens of God's just kingdom. And his promise to us that is ironclad in a world that always changes, his promise to us is ironclad that we are rich in him every single day. You who see yourself poor in the world's eye, in the eyes of your own flesh, you who have listened to the devil's lie that you are worthless and will never be amounting to anything, you who say in the church that I am poor and therefore feel like you have no meaning or purpose, you are actually richer than you could ever imagine. Not materially rich, not socially rich, but rich because you are loved by a God who sees the image inside of you, knows the darkest parts of you, and still pursues you and loves you and sends to you Jesus Christ. You see, God's affection for you is not on how you appear, but because of his acceptance of you is because the righteousness of Jesus Christ is in you and has made you worthy in his sight. Do you see how this has real implications in how we can be a church that doesn't cause church hurt or how we can be a church that learns to heal from church hurt? You see, when you've been given a grace like this, this transforms and changes everything about how you relate to the person sitting to your left and to your right and across and back. Rather than taking a vengeful spirit you remember that you are an heir of the kingdom of God and that you can forgive and that you can grant forgiveness because you have been greatly forgiven. Rather than denying the pain that you have caused others, you pursue others in love and faith to your, to your neighbor and ask them to be forgiven. To see yourself as the way God sees you gives you the grace to see the imperfect bride of Christ as something to love and as something that is always a work in progress because the love of our Savior has done the same for his imperfect bride. And when you live like this, you begin to see behind the curtain of partiality and how um, this sin really has done some horrible things to us. The veil kind of is just, you know, the, the, the scales are removed from your eyes when you see this because you see the disastrous consequences in trying to follow the sins of partiality in the world. Look at verses 6 and 7. There are three results of those who try to live like uh, showing worth in the rich, in the worldly rich. There are three results, three disastrous results. They oppress the poor. They unlawfully prosecute by dragging the poor into the courts. And verse 7, worst of all, they blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ by which we were called. If the fruit of righteousness is love and forgiveness and grace, the fruit of favoritism is that we turn into the very thing that we hate. When affections are based upon appearances, we turn into the oppressor, the unlawful, and ultimately we turn into someone who is blaspheming the name of God himself. Again, sadly, we see this all over the modern church today. 
We see church communities and leadership deeply wound its flock into siding with the abuser rather than the victim. We see those try to protect the rich and the powerful rather than those who should have been protected by the body of Christ. And all of those categories are an evil form of judgment. You see, partiality, receiving the face, incorrectly has disastrous consequences. And I say this because a lot of people say, well, you know, favoritism is just inevitable. It's, 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 it's just an innocent mistake. But, but if we're taking Scripture seriously, if you realize that it's, it's more than just an innocent mistake, it is destructive and it causes spiritual and physical violence. Nowhere do we have to turn more easily than the horrors of just even the past couple of weeks about this supposedly great Christian apologist who, as it turns out, was using his multi-million dollar Christian apologetic ministry, his name, his riches, and his status to cover up unspeakable abuses and crimes. And, you know, I wish I could say that this was the only example that I could give to you in the last several months. But the reality of this is that this happens far too often. Church, James is telling us all here to wake up and see that we are not immune to partiality, that the danger of it lurks on every corner. And I want to make sure that this is absolutely clear for all of us listening to us here today. Um, James is not saying, in, by saying showing partiality or showing favoritism, that, that you somehow have to reach this level of sort of relational equality with everyone, right? And you don't have sort of deeper affections for others as, as you do for, for your, like your best friends or your family, right? He's, he's not advocating a lifestyle where like, I must spend 15 minutes with every single person in the church. And that, that's not what he's saying here. That's not the point. The exhortation to the church is, is that how we view the people that walk through our doors, that, that, that when you walk through the doors of our church, when you join the assembly, that you can know what to expect in love for one another as we are part of this body. We will, we will not judge you unrighteously by the world's standards, by the flesh standards, by the devil's standards of what we would think to be successful. That you don't have to show pretentious to behavior or, or sort of charm us into thinking that that somehow will make us love you more. Rather, that James is saying, let's be a church that shows the grace of Jesus Christ to all who would want it and all who would want to receive it. Not just for the fortunate or the well-to-do, not just those who successfully keep up with the Joneses, but, but that our community would be marked by the kind of love that would be so transformative that, that the Redeemer Presbyterian Church would be known as a church of love. I mean, wouldn't you want to be a part of that church, that body? Family, isn't this the kind of community that we all desire to be a part of? This is why James says in verse 8, his second rebuke here for us today is that holiness is not found in half-heartedness. So if affections are not found in appearances, holiness is not found in half-heartedness. James is echoing right now the implication of the greatest commandment given by his brother, Jesus. That you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, note something important about what Jesus says and, and James is saying here in tying these two things together, right? When Jesus says that 
The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Matthew 22, right? That Jesus is linking these two in such a way that is saying that all of the law is bound up in these two things. So track with me here. Know who we are, church. We are the bride of Christ, the kingdom of God personified through image bearers that bear the name of Jesus on our lips and the seal of the Holy Spirit on our hearts, that, that, that you and I then are called to live out this kingdom ethic, this kingdom command that this community will follow the great commandment. And by the way, this church, I, I cannot speak enough about how this church already personifies this kind of neighborly love well. I mean, just even yesterday, Pastor Craig posted and said, you know, that he was in need of an amen on our Slack channel. And, and all of you just flooded him instantly with all these hearts and emojis and, and, and messages of love, right? Last month, when we were supporting the homeless in January, and that we all, you know, all of you came out to support and feed those who needed it most in the city of Charleston. All of you who try to love each other well in this, in this time of, of uncertainty, in this time where we, we feel socially distant in our community groups and all the meal trains, all the words of encouragement, all the, the, the visits to, to each other's houses safely in a way that, that we have shared and showed the love of Christ to each other. Um, you have done this well. But James is reminding us here that holiness can't be half-hearted. Right? We cannot just love parts of the body or do parts of love that we like doing. Right? You can't just love um, halfway. You can't just love the people in the same stage of life as you or the, the, the only those people who share your same political or economic viewpoints or only loving those who dress and look like the same way that you do. The call to love your neighbor in the church is one that, that has this value in Christ's kingdom. This is why he ties it to the greatest commandment, that in order to be a brother and sister in Christ, we have to not just love part way, but all the way, all the way. This is why James says in verse 10 that you are guilty of breaking the whole law, even if you've just broken a part of it, because the law of God is united. And to be against any one part of the law is to rebel against all of it. So here's an analogy that I love giving to um, my youth kids, but I think it's also important for us to kind of be able to understand, right? Imagine a glass of drinking water, all right, that you'd want to drink it. Now imagine that drinking, same glass of drinking water, and, and I fill it up halfway and fill it with sewage water. Right? Now how many of you here would be brave enough to drink that? None of you, right? Okay, fine. How about if I only did a third of sewage water? Would that make it better? No? Okay, fine, like two tablespoons. No? All right, how about just even a drop of sewage water? And I told you, here is a nice, clean glass of drinking water. It just only has one drop of sewage water. Here you go. Why would we not want to drink that? It's because we inherently understand that, that it, it doesn't matter how much of the amount is in it. That drinking glass of water cannot be holy because it's tainted, all right? Because it's, 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 it, the whole lot is corrupted. 
And so when James is saying holiness can't be half-hearted, he's, he's trying to say to the church, church, stop trying to call yourself holier than others. Right? You can't make comparisons on your holiness to others about the ways in which you follow God and then sort of just turn a blind eye to the areas in which you don't. Right? It just doesn't work. Holiness doesn't work that way. And so, in doing so, we have to be careful about how we present ourselves as holy. We are only holy because of the righteousness of God that is on us. And we have to be careful about how we approach one another. Now, Scripture reminds us we must keep people accountable. Don't get me wrong. Right? We must call out sin. We must confront and have accountability and show that brothers and sisters of Christ need to repent. But we have to be careful about how we present ourselves as, as though we were somehow holier than the other person next to us. No, it's, it's just like comparing levels of sewage water in a glass of drinking water. This leads us to the third main rebuke of James's exhortation to his church today. So, affections is not based in appearances. Holiness is not based in half-heartedness. Last point in these last two verses that James here is trying to make is that mercy is not based in malice. Mercy is not based in malice. So, in these first 11 verses, James has been building his case like a good lawyer. He's demonstrating how the church's favoritism is destructive, how it causes them to be guilty of doing the very thing that the enemies of the church were doing, uh, and that the greatest commandments of Jesus needed to be kept for those living under the royal law of his kingdom. And finally, in verse 12, he says this, to speak and to act as those who know the end of the story. If you recall, this is something that James does quite often in his book, to speak and act as those the end of the story and he does it again right here. That everything that we do now and today matters. Because everything that we speak and act has implications for all of eternity as those who are living under God's kingdom and God's laws. And so track with me here. Right? As Christians, what do we believe? You believe that one day a new heavens and a new earth will be established. That all unjust laws will be wiped away and that we will be sitting in perfect peace of God's kingdom. That every uh, injustice will be made right again that has ever existed in the world. And what does Jesus say in Mark chapter 1 verse 15 about this great kingdom? Behold, the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Yes, the kingdom of God is not here yet, but there is a sense in which the kingdom of God has already arrived here. And if we're taking Jesus' words at heart, then let me ask you, what is stopping you from living in God's law here today? What is stopping you from loving in the way that James is calling for the church to love here today? What is stopping us from living in this laws that bring true freedom I'm not talking about, you know, sort of the, the Western idea of freedom where we, we think of freedom as, is, you know, the call to do whatever the heck we want to do. That's not freedom. That's chaos. We're talking about God's freedom. True freedom is living in the laws of God that truly lead to peace, rest, Sabbath. Because once you begin to realize this, you will understand the heart of God's law is not ultimately about judgment. It's about mercy. 
Sure, God's law is there to curb your sin, to, to reflect to us as a guide, right? But we, we can't miss what the Reformation and the Reformers called the third use of the law. And that is simply this. The law of God is to remind us of our need for Jesus and his mercy to cover us, right? You remember Christ on the Sermon on the Mount? What did he say? Blessed are the merciful for what? They will be shown mercy. This is why partiality ultimately destroys church communities and destroys the body of Christ because it's proclaiming a gospel of works and appearances and half-heartedness over the gospel of grace and mercy. It proclaims malice before mercy can be received. Whereas in the gospel of mercy, is, is give, we, we, we see that mercy is given freely and generously, malice says that you need to earn it. But the gospel of mercy says, no, I give you freedom to release you from your church hurt, right? the freedom to not hurt others, the freedom to forgive those who have deeply wounded you, the freedom to reach out to the deeply wounded. You see, the gospel of mercy molds us in more and more and more into the fountains of mercy that is Jesus Christ, who though hurt and wounded by his disciples, by the world, by his followers, Christ still pursued them. And he told them to feed his sheep. Jackie Hill Perry says in Speaking for a Desiring God, she writes this, Some use their hurt as justification for hatred, but we have to remember that Jesus was hurt and he chose to love. What I realized as a young child watching my mother weep that day was that the way that in which I had hurt her did not change the way in which she loved me and the way that she wished for me to follow her. And in many ways, my faithful mom was following the footsteps of Christ. Do you know when the Bible says that Christ wept for the city of Jerusalem, that those were the tears of a hurting Savior? That when he wept for Lazarus, he was weeping for his brothers and sisters in Christ. That when he cries in the garden of Gethsemane, he's weeping because he knows the cost of mercy for all of us. Jesus, though hurting and weeping and crying for his church, he takes the judgment that we deserved and loves us all the same. That anyone would believe and confess in the name of Jesus Christ, regardless of your appearance, regardless of how badly you have messed up holiness, that Jesus comes to you and says, I give to you mercy, not malice. Church, my prayer and exhortation to us today, that we be like our great Savior. That James's rebuke to us in this chapter would not lead us to greater guilt and shame, but rather the greater pursuit to love one another in this church family as Christ loved us first. Let's pray together. Father, we, we confess, Lord, that we are a community that is broken, Lord, by church hurt. We confess our partiality and our sin. 
And Lord, we confess that this has caused devastating effects for the people of God. But Lord, we have a grace that is greater than all of our sin. We have a love that transforms and changes us and chooses to love even the ones that have hurt us. And as we do so, Lord, may we realize the love of Christ, his transforming grace that moves us from being oppressors, from being unjust blasphemers, and moves us to being the church that follows its Savior. In his name we pray these things. Amen.